When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the next episode of How Good It Is, the show that takes a closer look at songs from the rock and roll era and we check out some of the stories behind those songs and the artists who made them famous. My name is Claude Call and I might be working harder this summer than I do during the school year. Uh, If you work at the central office in my school district, then uh, I I didn't really say that. Hey, remember to check out the website, howgooditis.com, and the Twitter, and the Instagram, and of course the Facebook page, which you can find over at facebook.com slash, ow, how good it is, Bob. So next week, we're going to look at Woodstock, but this week's trivia question is about another big music festival from 1969. Specifically, the Altamont Speedway Free Festival, which took place on December 6th, 1969. Most people know about Meredith Hunter, the young man who was killed during the Rolling Stones set. In fact, uh, we've talked about him in this space just a few weeks ago. So I'd like to talk about something else instead. The festival was primarily organized by members of two different bands, one of which ended up not playing at the festival. The first band was the Jefferson Airplane, which did play. I'd like you to name the other band, which was so instrumental in putting the whole thing together, but which wound up not participating in the show itself. And this may come as a surprise to you, but I will have the answer for you near the end of this show. So we have just passed the uh, 50th anniversary of one of the worst memories of the 1960s, the Tate-LaBianca murders committed by Charles uh, Manson's family cult. Up until that point, they were a relatively harmless bunch of teenagers and young adults who might have gotten into relatively minor trouble. So when these murders took place, everyone was just horrified by it. And the closer people looked at things, the weirder and more nightmarish it got. Now, the one thing that most people know about Charles Manson is that he was influenced by the Beatles, specifically the White Album, and more specifically, the song Helter Skelter. Manson had traveled to Los Angeles in 1968, and when he returned to the ranch that they lived on in Death Valley, he was convinced that the Beatles had seeded the entire album with clues for people to interpret regarding a war that was coming. But let's start with the big one, just so I can get out of the way. Okay, Manson had it all wrong from the jump, okay? A helter-skelter is literally about a playground slide, okay? And while its final incarnation is very down and dirty and chaotically noisy, it didn't really start out that way. But Paul McCartney had read an interview with uh, Pete Townsend in which he talks about The Who's I Can See for Miles as the loudest, rawest, dirtiest song The Who had ever recorded. Now, here's where the story gets a little bit fuzzy because McCartney has said that he wrote Helter Skelter as a response to I Can See for Miles, which he didn't view as especially loud or raw. Here's one of the earlier takes of Helter Skelter.
definitely got a hard edge to it, but it's also done in a very bluesy style. It's not until later on that the song started morphing into something a little bit harder. Here's a take marked as number 17. closer to the version that we all know i mean you know the 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 background vocals aren't there and the guitar solos aren't as as pronounced but still basically a lot harder now as i said before a helter skelter is a playground slide specifically one of uh, it's a large spiral slide that winds around a central tower and while the lyrics do slide into more of a sexual metaphor almost right away it's never meant to be more than a big noisy song with lots of implied chaos but the fact is that the beatles generally plan stuff carefully more often than not when they made a mistake they somehow worked it back into to the recording. At any rate, Manson took the phrase to mean that a race war was coming, specifically that the black people were going to rise up and completely obliterate the white race. Furthermore, according to Manson, once Helter Skelter was done with, the blacks wouldn't know what to do afterward, and that's when he and his family, who would have been hiding out in a cave the entire time, would come out of hiding and then take over. Number nine, number nine, number nine. Another clue to Helter Skelter came from the song Revolution 9, which Manson explained was the Beatles' version of what Helter Skelter would be like. In short, Manson drew a line between the song and the last book of the Bible, specifically Chapter 9 of the Book of Revelation, which describes a hellish, bottomless pit opening up in the world and a plague of human-like locusts with long hair coming to torture the unfaithful until an angel blows a trumpet to God. And I suppose if you don't know what all that looks like, well, this recording could be the next best thing, I I guess. Nah. So here's the thing about Revolution 9. It's obviously an avant-garde piece, and it's been a controversial track since the day the album dropped. But it's held a certain fascination for me, specifically because of the different elements that it has, with the sound effects from Abbey Road Sound Library and audio clips of broadcasts and bits of John Lennon screaming and little snippets of classical music, and then that loop of an EMI engineer saying number nine repeatedly. Now, this wasn't the Beatles' first foray into avant-garde sound. In fact, there's another audio collage called Carnival of Light that has never seen the light of day, and as of right now, it's not likely to. But Revolution 9 was something a little bit different. It's a form of music called musique concrète, which translates literally into concrete music. It's meant to be a collage, but it also uses manipulated raw material. So, for instance, that number nine loop is originally from a test recording with the engineer saying, this is EMI test series number nine. Well, Lennon's birthday is on the ninth of the month, so he considered it his lucky number. So, he chopped out those two words, and he created a tape loop that he could bring into the mix at will. And even once it was loaded into the board, 
Once in a while, he would ping-pong it through left and right channels so that number would be in the left channel, for instance, and nine would be in the right, or vice versa, depending on his, his, his capriciousness, really. Number Now, Beatles fans will remember that there are two versions of the original song, Revolution. The one that was released as the B-side of Hey Jude is a rocker and has a full finish on it. But the one here on the White Album that you're listening to now, is titled Revolution 1, is much slower and it has a fade to it. However, the song was originally much longer, with some takes going on as long as 17 minutes, as the song devolves into chaos and a bit of a musique conclate sound of its own. And there are elements of that longer ending that made it onto Revolution Number no. 9. At any rate, Revolution 1 has the line where John Lennon sings, Don't you know that you can count me out? In. That's his attempt at being deliberately obscure. But the fast version had already come out and it had gotten airplay. And that version has Lennon singing a definite count me out. So Manson saw that as the Beatles, they changed their mind. Now they're in favor of the violent overthrow. Unfortunately, Manson completely overlooked the part where Lennon sings, but if you want money for people with minds that hate, all I can tell you is, brother, you have to wait. Instead, interpreting the line, we'd all love to see the plan. We'd all love to see the plan. Well, that was a message from the Beatles to Manson telling him that he needed to demonstrate that he could be the spark. Manson over overlooked uh, specific references to Chairman Mao in China. So, you know, there's, there's that, too. Blackbird singing in the dead of night. Take these broken wings and learn to fly. Now, there are a couple of other songs that Manson tied directly to his helter-skelter theory. The first one is Blackbird, which Paul McCartney said was specifically about civil rights in general and more specifically about females who were working for racial equality. In Manson's head, this song was the Beatles' way of programming black people to start the uprising. The word rise, or arise, was a big one in Manson's vocabulary, and it appears in this song as part of the lyrics, and also in Revolution 9 as a long, drawn-out scream. Then there was Piggies, a George Harrison-written tune where he takes down the bourgeois folks as a kind of circular firing squad, willing to kill and eat each other metaphorically. Again, Manson interpreted this as the pigs being police, since it was a relatively new and common epithet for police, and the line that John contributed, what they need's a damn good whacking, was taken to mean that the pigs, the cops, the establishment in general, all of it needed to be whacked. Now somewhere in the black mining hills of Dakota there lived a young boy named Rocky Raccoon. On a similar note, Paul McCartney wrote a goofy little song about a cowboy named Rocky Sassoon with some input from John Lennon and Donovan. At some point, McCartney changed the character's name to Raccoon because he thought it sounded more cowboy-like. Manson seized upon this as another thinly-veiled story of a black uprising because of the word coon being used in the song and the phrase Rocky's Revival. That's the rising, right? <laughs> 
But it doesn't end there, because Manson liked to rename the people in his cult, and one of the names he gave out was to Susan Atkins, who he called Sadie Mae Glutz. Now, this was before the uh, White Album came out, so having a person in the cult who shared a name with a person on the album was a minor coincidence at best until after Atkins was arrested and she agreed to testify to the grand jury in order to avoid the death penalty. And that's what led to the arrests of Manson and the others involved in the Tate-LaBianca killings. But Manson was able to tie the song back to Atkins with the first couple of verses of the song. And I don't usually get to talk about the Beatles much, so I just want to point out I love the way the piano sounds on this track. And here's how Susan Atkins ruined everything. Once again, however, Manson was misinterpreting things. Go figure. Sexy Sadie was written about the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, with whom the Beatles had just spent time in India. The Maharishi made sexual advances on Mia Farrow and probably other women there, and John Lennon left the ashram with a bad taste in his mouth. In fact, Sexy Sadie was the last thing he wrote before he departed. And while there are some audio clips where Lennon is singing the original title, Maharishi... George Harrison talked him into changing it. Okay, I'm going to hit you with three more quickies before I wrap up here. The song I Will has the line, Your song will fill the air, sing it loud so I can hear you, which was a message telling Manson to make his own album to spread the message that he was a resurrection of Jesus Christ. Similarly, the phrase Hollywood song in Honey Pie meant that Manson was a singing messiah to boot. Manson also claimed that there were messages in Your Blues, Don't Pass Me By, and the Magical Mystery Tour track Blue Jay Way, all of which were suggesting that the Beatles were looking for him. There are numerous accounts that the uh, Manson cult members made multiple attempts to contact the Beatles to get them to come out before the war went down. But so far as anyone knows, nobody heard about it at the other end. And what did the Beatles think of all this? Well, in the 1980 Playboy interview, John Lennon was quoted as saying, Manson was just an extreme version of the people who came up with the Paul is dead thing or who figured out that the initials to Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds was LSD and concluded I was writing about acid. Ringo was quoted in Rolling Stone as saying that he knew both Sharon Tate and her husband, Roman Polanski, so it was a very rough time for him. George Harrison and Paul McCartney addressed it in the 2000 Beatles Anthology book, with George saying it was upsetting to be associated with Charles Manson, and Paul kind of denying that he looked at the whole thing too closely, but he did say, hey, you don't write songs for reasons like that. In fact, McCartney avoided playing uh, Helter Skelter at all in concerts until just a few years ago in 2004, although it has been a staple of shows ever since then. And now it's time to answer today's trivia question. Back on page two, 
I asked you to name the second of the two bands that were instrumental in organizing and promoting the Altamont Free Festival, the concert during which an audience member was killed by the Hells Angels while the Rolling Stones played on stage. The first band, as I mentioned earlier, was the Jefferson Airplane. Now, the Rolling Stones were always part of the plan, but they weren't a crucial part of planning or promotion of the concert. That part fell to the third big headliner, the Grateful Dead. They were supposed to go on stage between Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young and the Rolling Stones, but when they arrived at the venue, they heard about the deteriorating situation, which included the airplane's Marty Ballon being knocked out by one of the Hells Angels when he tried to intercede in an offstage altercation. So the dead, thinking that security was getting to be a problem, refused to play and left the area. Afterward, Rolling Stone magazine, calling it Rock and Roll's all-time worst day, wrote, That's the way things went at Altamont, so badly that the Grateful Dead, prime organizers and movers of the festival, didn't even get to play. And that's a full lid on another edition of How Good It Is. If you're enjoying the show, please take the time to share it with someone and maybe even leave a rating somewhere. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can email me at howgoodpodcast at gmail.com or you can follow the show on Twitter or Instagram at howgooditispod. You can also visit, like, and follow the show's Facebook page at facebook.com slash howgooditispod or you can check out the show's website, howgooditis.com, where you might find a few extra bits. Thanks, as usual, to Podcast Republic for featuring the show. And next week, we're going to look at Woodstock. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next time. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards.